0: Hello, Indigos, and welcome back to Waking Up with Zen. I'm your guide, teacher, and host, Zen Katori. Last week marked the beginning of the Chinese New Year, and we are now in the Year of the Ox. Today on Waking Up with Zen, I wanted to celebrate this special occasion by telling you a Zen allegory about an ox. It's called The Tending of the Ox. <laughs> which actually starts us off right at the beginning of Noah and the Flood, and will take us the rest of the way through Noah's story. The Tending the Ox allegory is broken up into ten images and poetic verses. The ten ox herding pictures describe the Zen path to enlightenment. The images tell the story of a young ox herder who has become enlightened and how he came to be an indigo, an independent, non-dominating, intuitive governing oneself his quest will lead him to tame train and subdue a lost ox in chinese culture the ox is understood to be the heart and mind the goal of zen is to control both your heart and mind because your thoughts and your love or desires are truly what create everything in your world you can see these 10 ox herding pictures in zen temples across asia although there are some slight alterations to the artwork and even how some of the images are arranged in their story progression. However, the story and the goal are the same. Search for and find your happiness, learn to control it, and then come back to the world as the enlightened version of yourself. On my Zen journey, I had to give up and let go of all the things that I thought were me to discover what was actually me. Then, I started adopting new answers to the elements that defined me, like your soul's compass, and I went from an abused child to an enlightened individual in only 15 years. Liggity It is not until we realize that we've lost our happiness that we even begin to go looking for it. In order to look for it, we must first realize it is us that strayed from our own happiness. The ox did not leave us we left the ox. We did this when we were children, which created our manufactured egos. Now that we've lived in this negative world, we know we don't want it anymore. So now we have to create our enlightened egos. And this is the beginning to the end of your sadness. But how do we do it? Find out today on Waking Up With Zen. Recently, on Waking Up With Zen, we've been discovering that the living world that surrounds us is actually a multidimensional mirror that reflects our beliefs, thoughts, emotions, words, and actions. Everything that surrounds us is just a direct reflection of ourselves, the one we've allowed ourselves to become. The living world that currently surrounds us is the result of all the answers we've been giving to the universe since we got here. Since we became human, we were forced, however, during our childhoods to adopt answers that were not our own, which is the source of all the chaos in our lives. Now, this didn't happen in a single day. It happened over time. Through kicking and screaming and fighting and defiant behavior, for 18 years, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, we were named told how to behave, when to eat, sleep, and play, and whether or not we deserve love and affection. Plus, it was reinforced by everyone in the container we grew up with. None of us can escape who we had to become in order to survive our childhoods. This person we had to be when we were growing up is what I call our manufactured ego. However, there is free will for all of us. And change is a natural and constant part of the human process, thereby allowing you to change your living world by clarifying a new you, which is what I call the enlightened ego. And through kicking and screaming and fighting and defiant behavior of the manufactured self, you will swing back to the way you wish it had been all along, to your enlightened ego. It's the same thing I've been saying. Search for and find your enlightened ego, rehearse and become your enlightened ego, and then come back to the world to be an example of joy, excitement, and (laughs) well-being. Remember, a lot of people are children and they're all monkey see, monkey do. It's just that the television, the tablet, the phone are their only examples of happiness in their reality. Everyone else just works and tries to deal with life. A majority of people are just waiting around to die because they were told this is not heaven. There are avid, die-hard communities and countries of people who are all just waiting around to die and go to gatherings every Sunday to reconvince themselves to wait for death and suffer a little bit more before they die. You are then to drop off 10% of your self-worth, value, and love to the man in black and you don't even get a guarantee you'll make it to heaven, or that God will actually love you. It's a gamble. This is Pascal's wager. Might as well go to church because you can't prove what will happen when you die, so you should believe in it. You're supposed to suffer for the Lord. Jesus suffered for you. You are to suffer for Jesus. See him up there on the cross. Bleeding out? Do you think he just did that for nothing? No. You bow your head. You look at the ground. You repent in the presence of the Lord and you better ask him to forgive you of all your sins because even one will keep you from heaven. But you know deep down inside you, you know with every fiber of your being you are born a sinner. You need Jesus because otherwise you wouldn't even have a prayer to get into heaven when you die. Do you know where you'll go when you die? Huh? Hell. Where you burn and you suffer a lot more than you'll ever do here, I assure you. Oh, you think you'll have such a bad life. Wait till you're writhing in agony in the fiery pits of hell. Screaming, wailing, gnashing of teeth. You better get on your knees and prostrate yourself in front of the Lord. And you better pray. He forgives your condemned soul because I wouldn't. May God have mercy on your soul if he chooses to do so. That section felt sad and disgusting. Uh, Even just acting it out. Sadly, people really believe this stuff and believe that this is what church is all about and that's how church has become. It's no longer a mystery school for the individual to grow and learn and graduate from. It's become a prison that wraps you in and forces you to tithe... And hold yourself low, prostrate, and and to, to drop yourself down, to kneel, and to be subordinate when you shouldn't be. And the thing is, is that all these people can't wait to die so they can get to heaven. They just want to deal with this crappy place and all its crappy inhabitants and all the nastiness and ugliness only as long as they have to so they get a lottery chance to get to heaven. This is why Pascal's theory is the basis for a lot of people's faith. The faith that life really is a sucky place and everyone in it who does not go to this right church or is bad, not important. And kill them if you have to, they say, through war, famine, or prison, because they're sinners and bad people. And God will save them if they, if they really should be. And then these people, and then these people have children. And convince them this place is crappy, and all its inhabitants are crappy as well. Thanks, guy who couldn't pull out. Thanks, girl who has low self-esteem. They believe their entire life is only something you have to get through in order to get to the place you really want to be. Can you see how this thought could kill you? Could you see how this singular thought that you're not in control and that you're not God would separate you from your happiness? And the idea that there is evil in this world Just that idea at the end of in chapter one 131 all things are very good, and then you have this tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil Ugh. Do you see how that could separate us from our happiness? <music> only two schools of thought that prevail from all authority and leadership, either the belief that all people are good or all people are bad. Period. Those are the only two options, and from those two places the rest of the container in society will be formed. What happens when our elected officials believe life is a bad place? Where they faithfully believe that this world is a bad place and the people in it are bad? God this, God that? Blah, blah, blah. Insert my opinions about the group that is not donating, voting, fighting, agreeing, following, or submitting to our group's thoughts about their conformity. And only if they submit to another person or a church authority, to the political leaders, the answer makers for the container, which creates everything else, only if you submit to the idea you are not good enough as you are, do the political leaders believe that you'd be worthy enough to be a living human being who could amount to something or the nothing that they've set up for you. However, if you take a knee for our group, we will love you, conditionally. Will we need prisons instead of schools? Will we need preachers instead of professionals? Will we need hospitals instead of playgrounds? In the last episode, the prime effects of belief, we learned about the qubit, the magical awareness tool for seeing the container. By seeing the container, you literally have seen the end of someone. You see, everyone is always whole and complete. And by seeing their container, you see all the possibilities for their life. We learned earlier on that our life container is determined by the three questions, where are we, what are we, and why are we? By saying we are in a bad place, by saying we are sinners and mortal men, and by saying we are here to suffer and bleed, you can easily predict the outcomes by the outlook of the individual. The prime effects of belief alter our personal perspective, responsibility, intention, motivation, and expectation, depending on what it is we believe. This is why Lemich says, if Cain be avenged sevenfold, Then Limitch, surely seventy- and sevenfold. Godliness isn't even on his radar anymore. But that is exactly what the cubit is. It's a personal radar to see the end of you, where you end and someone else begins. What have you noticed about yourself these last couple of weeks? Has it been easier to spot things you like? Things you want? Mm Has it been easier to divide things and see them for just themselves? Has it been easier to see your reflection in the living world around you? Are you seeing what the universe is throwing back at you? (laughs) If you do, then you are already on to image two of the Tending the Ox story. Tending the Ox the Ten Plates of Zen. The ten ox herding pictures describe the Zen training path to enlightenment. Images are also accompanied by these poems. They depict a young ox herder whose quest leads him to tame, train, and transform his heart and mind, a process that is represented by subduing the ox. The short pieces at the beginning of each commentary are poetic verses that accompany these images, and sometimes they're on plates. And you can look up the Ten Bulls online. There's multiple articles on the Tending the Ox allegory. Now, the short pieces at the beginning of each commentary that I will be reading from are the poetic verses by Master Kusan, first printed in his book, The Way of Korean Zen. The first image is called Searching for the Ox. It is the picture of a man who seems to have lost something. He looks down at a river, disappointed that whatever it is he lost, he still is not found. On the verge of quitting, he continues on a little bit farther to see if it turns up. The poem says, hurriedly parting the brush, searching for it. Water-wide, mountains far away, road-long, tired and exhausted, still it eludes me. The chirp of evening cicadas in the maple trees is all that is heard. Our cubits begin here. From the Zen perspective, because now you're looking for your happiness, you finally realized you've lost something. Just like Noah. Just like the man in the ox-herding image. The ox, our personal happiness, comes from having peace of mind and a free heart. In doing so, the thing we're looking for is in all essence of the word, alive. Our happiness changes the way that the river of abundance has four heads, the way the garden is bigger than a dime. And the ox... We'll move. Meaning that when we look for our happiness, it is a singular thing, right? We didn't lose a herd of cattle. That's more like real life or real society. People tell you this is supposed to make you happy. No, no, now that. Mm, n- now this. Oh my God, did you hear about the latest thing? Now all of a sudden, your happiness is never centrally located. It's separate and it's impossible to align because you can't align A herd of cattle. But you can control one bull. This is the point of the tending the ox picture. Happiness. Your happiness is completely achievable. But you must go look for it. With our cubit tool in hand. Search high and low. To and fro. Up close and far away. Hurriedly parting the brush, searching for it. Water wide, mountains far away, road long, tired and exhausted, still it eludes me. The chirp of evening cicadas in the maple trees is all that is heard. This is the beginning of our journey to find our happiness. In the beginning, we are lost and unaware of what it is we lost. (laughs) What do you do when you're late and you can't find your keys? (laughs) You destroy your house. You upturn everything. Cushions, rugs, ripping out stuff out of the freezer, diving through the linen closet. 450,000 times we look for our happiness. We frantically look for all these different types of animals, looking for a pair of them both mind and body thought and feeling and when you look as much for something like that patterns will start to emerge and then we'll start to see similar happinesses in all of our cubits and maybe you've started to see that you really like animals maybe you've realized you really like being social and out in society Maybe you've discovered that you keep finding yourself relaying messages or delivering things. Whatever it may be, you'll find that you have a line with the six elements of your soul's compass. Name, energy, love, tribe, outcome, occupation. This line that you discover for all of these elements, which inevitably lead to your happiness, are the oxes footprints spotting the ox's tracks in the second image the man can be seen beside a river he has found some tracks and it seems he's on the right trail but the ox still evades his focused eyes the poem reads its tracks can be seen under the trees along the river Parting the brush, do you see it? Even in such a remote place, deep in the mountains, how can the vast sky hide its nose? Suddenly, you realize your happiness is everywhere, but now you've spotted that it's gone all over the place. You can't tell whether it was first here and then came back to this spot or this is a set of old happinesses, and these are the more recent versions of your happinesses. The damn thing keeps invading us, and it brings up more frustration that we could have had happiness this whole time. We could have just paid attention, then we would have had our happiness right here next to us. But no, now it's gone. Who knows where to? Who knows where it's at? Maybe you try to employ somebody else's help. That's right. That's it. Let's do it. Somebody else is going to help us. But to most people who don't have their own happiness, it will be impossible for them to help you find yours. They'll think of the happiness like the lost herd of cattle, where happiness isn't this one thing, it's a whole bunch of things. And the idea that it's a whole bunch of things means that you're never gonna find complete happiness. And they say, oh, it's okay, take this morsel instead. Take only one or two head of cattle because you can't have real happiness. Real happiness only comes when you die, when you get to be in heaven with all the good people. Annoyance starts creeping in with people who don't believe in your paradise and that life is heaven. This is why people are all willing to take the scraps of their authorities because their authorities are in a position over them and they're convincing them that they couldn't be happy without them and that in order to have a good life, they have to die to be happy. Do you hear the absurdity? How can you have eternal life when you're dead? That sounds like eternal death with no living. Noah didn't have anyone else's help to build his ark either. He had to go look for, find, and build his whole life with his own hands. We all have to do this, but we won't discover that until the end of Noah and the Flood. So, we turn towards our tracks, and we start in search again for wherever they may lead, but, once again, rage and anger start to overwhelm you. I have tracks. I see the tracks. Where are you? Holy cow, I have tracks on trees, through rivers, and on grandmother's house. How did I get there? What are you doing? Are you trying to avoid me? Am I not a good master? Why did you stray from me? And frustrated, we sit down. You might be confused about where the ox is, but one thing has been proven. Your happiness, the ox, exists. Knowing now that happiness is real, you're no longer trying to prove the ox exists anymore. You've gone beyond that step. Now you know it's real. Now you're just pissed you can't seem to find it. And suddenly, we plop down on the ground, annoyed and slightly defeated, but aware happiness is out there. Our mind has gotten to a new step and we suddenly stop using our eyes now. And we stop trying to see the ox. And we just let the things blur in front of us and we stare off into the abyss of time and space. Let's wrap in verse one again. Hurriedly parting the brush, searching for it. Water wide, mountains far away, road long, tired and exhausted, still it eludes me. The chirp of evening cicadas in the maple trees is all that is heard. Its tracks can be seen under the trees along the river. Parting the brush, do you see it? Even in such a remote place deep in the mountains, how can the vast sky hide its nose? An oriole calls from a green bow. Warm sun. Gentle breeze, willow-lined river. And in the midst of your visualization, you suddenly hear the ox moving through the brush. It wasn't until you had the passion and the rage and the anger that you allowed yourself to start down this path. Your initial passion got you here. It helped you find the tracks, and follow the tracks, and discern the tracks, but now it's not the energy that's going to help you find the ox. The ox must be felt. Remember Adam and the Tree of Life? It was either a cherubim or a flaming sword. To see angels, you don't use your physical eyes. The same way you don't see super far away or super close up with your eyes, you need, a different, you need a different filter, scope, binoculars, or telescope, or you have cheaters, magnifying glass, or a microscope. We go beyond the power of our physical eyes by employing our other senses. It is only after we've exhausted our eyes that we begin to use other parts of ourselves, like listening, feeling, smelling. It's only after we've exhausted our childhood strategies, that we also begin to look for new ones. Seeing the Ox. The poem reads, an oriole calls from a green bow, warm sun, gentle breeze, willow lined river, no place to hide its head and horns, there, real to life. The third image is the man on one side of the plate, and as you scan your eyes from left to right, you see just the head of a black ox on the right-hand side of the plate, opposite the man. It's like the overly dramatic moment in Kill Bill, part one where the bride meets up with Oren towards the end of the movie, the ox has this surprised look on its face, and the man has a look of, finally. But now that you've found it, how will you make it come with you? The next two images and verses go together almost hand in hand because our happiness hasn't actually been figured out yet. Just because we know we are unhappy, doesn't confirm we know what is and what will make us happy. We only know what we've known from our past experiences. You don't know what you don't know. Plate number four is called Capturing the Ox. The poem reads, With all my effort, I take hold of it. Strong and stubborn, it is hard to control. One minute it is on the high plateau, the next in a place deep among the clouds. Plate five, herding the ox. Never be without whip and tether, or it might stray in the world. Herded properly, it will become tame. Untethered, it will follow unforced. With all my effort, I take hold of it. Strong and stubborn, it is hard to control. One minute it is on the high plateau, the next in a place deep among the clouds. After he's seen the ox in Image 2, he's fought off o initial bodyguards and achieved the third image where the bull is now attached by the nose with a lead rope as the man is struggling with all his might to overpower the ox. Here's where the sound of motorcycles overwhelm the speakers, and the bride hears this and looks at Oren, and Oren says, "You didn't think it'd be that easy, did you?" And the bride responds with, "For a second there, yeah, I did. <laughs> Remember how we kept finding the tracks all over the place when we initially set out to look for the ox?" And remember how there's always light and always dark everywhere at any given time? If the sun is out, it casts full shadows. If it's night, then we see stars. Both are always available to us. This is why happiness is found everywhere. Depending on your day and attitude, what was once pleasing is now crap. What was now stupid is now cool. The ox, our happiness, will be on the plateau one minute and in the clouds the next because we can see happiness in the world, in a forest, home, river, mountains. This is exactly why these tracks are found all over the place and why the ox will pull us everywhere. Never be without whip and tether, or it might stray in the world. Herded properly, it will become tame. Untethered, it will follow unforced. Sometimes our happiness, well, what we think is our happiness, doesn't make us happy anymore. But sometimes it returns us to a state of past security. People don't really like change or changing. We actually crave familiarity. The problem then becomes that we tend to stay in the same pattern that wants to gravitate back towards our manufactured selves. So even if the ox is not straying, you have to be diligent so it knows you're watching every move it makes. Remember, the creative process goes from the soul to the mind with our beliefs causing our emotions, which we throw at the universe. The universe, our personal world, will throw that emotion back to us in physical experiences that the body will then have. This generates feelings which are then relayed back to the mind via the body. Now, the mind evaluates the full experience and the return experience and then throws another emotion at the universe. Essentially, the world's a living reflection of us. And it takes some time once we change things, once we throw a ball into the universe's court for it to return the ball back to us. So even though you want your best relationship right now, you want to lose weight right now, You want more money right now. It won't happen overnight. You'll have to retrain yourself for a while to create a new habitual pattern, which means your happiness will keep wanting to go back to the way it was. It's familiar. hmm? You have to keep it focused. You have to keep it on track. This is the fifth image. Now that you've caught your happiness, you'll need to keep it moving in the right direction. You'll have to learn to not only know yourself, you must also know your happiness and then keep them balanced. In the fifth image many things have changed now. The interesting thing to note in certain allegorical images the ox who was colored black in images three and four has now turned to white. The man is leading the ox without using his physical strength and you can tell Not only from the man's gait, but also that there's a slack in the lead rope now. And it sags as the ox walks easily beside him. And it appears to even have a smile on its face. But the man's face is very focused in the fifth image. Even though everything is going his way, the man is not necessarily happy himself. It's like when you finally memorize your lines for your part in a play, and now you're off book. Right? now you're told you can't use your script anymore. You have to do it all from memory. You have the lines in your head, but you have not been able to relax into them yet. So you have to still stay focused on the lines and kind of stay in your head rather than allowing your emotional involvement with the scene to happen as well. So now you're leading your happiness and your happiness is walking happily beside you, but you still have to maintain focus effort. You still have a couple more weeks of rehearsal before we get to tech week with all my effort I take hold of it strong and stubborn it is hard to control one minute it is on the high plateau the next in a place deep among the clouds never be without whip and tether or a might stray in the world herded properly it will become tame untethered it will follow unforced. <music> These two verses are during the period when you're building and loading your ark. First, you have to get all the materials to protect and shelter you from the future transformation you're about to experience. You then have to gather all the animals and make sure you have your two best of each sort after your kind and bring them onto the ark. The cubit is what helps us track and see and catch all those wonderful things and then bring them all to us in one place which is the gathering or the catching of the ox. The emotional flood has happened now, and now that you're afloat and moving along, there's still no land, so you must continue to stay focused on where you want to be in every moment. Keep yourself and your soul's compass in alignment. Keep checking in with your cubits to see if the reflection around you is fitting for your enlightened ego. If people are being petty, negative, lazy, or downers, is that really how you want to see the enlightened you? This is why the path is so hard. When you've gotten so separated from all these people, you unfortunately realize how many people are fake and selfless and simply wait for someone to tell them what to do. You'll, like Noah, plead to convince these people that life is not horrible, that life is great, because you've been watching Waking Up with Zen, and of course, that's how we believe it here. (laughs) But they won't come with you, their whole family set of friends and even their neighbors believe life is a waiting place to get to a better place. And all people are naturally bad. You'll say that's not the only way and they'll tell you, yes it is. You are the one who doesn't really know. You live in some sort of fantasy land. But these are the people who can't see their own power unfolding in their day to day. That's me. Always hurting myself. (laughs) Being a klutz. I'm always getting into trouble. I've never been able to do that. No, ask my family. I've never been good at this. Uh, I can't do it. It's because it's just who I am. I'm not good at school. I'm not good with money. I'm not good with the relationships. All these people gather together in cities trying to one-up each other, trying to destroy their life and beat themselves up because they have to maintain their truths. They have to get... They have to get their hurt. They have to be sick. They have to sabotage their relationships. So they do just that, to keep up with their character. It speaks patterns in their inevitable outcomes. What's your soul's compass from the enlightened perspective? Are you creating a life worthy enough to be called paradise? Are you looking for other happy living gods Can you see the fullness of who you are? Mind, body, and reality from the soul's perspective? Animal symbolism. We've already talked about gophers and buzzards, serpents and dragons. More Ouroboros. More Ouroboros. (laughs) Sorry, I thought... I thought I could do that without laughing so hard. (laughs) We've got a couple of animals in this episode, starting with the cicadas in the first verse of the Tending the Ox. Yes, it is also intentional. Hurriedly parting the brush, searching for it, water wide, mountains far away, road long, tired and exhausted, still it eludes me, the chirp of evening cicadas in the maple trees is all that is heard. The cicada is a type of flying insect that is best known for its ability to sing, like a cricket, in a loud tone. Linnaeus, a Swedish Swedish botanist, named the cicada, which lent itself to mean tree cricket in Latin. The group's genus is called Magia Cicada, and it comes from the Greek word magi meaning magic the same way a butterfly transforms from a caterpillar the life cycle and metamorphosis of this cricket was observed by the ancient greeks chinese and mayas and was considered to be magical the encyclopedia of animal symbolism in art describes the cicada as a chinese and greek symbol of renewed life and immortality and Cicadas have a very strong symbol of longevity and, my favorite, everlasting happiness. The two other animals we have in this transformational journey are the raven and the dove. Now, in Noah's story, he uses two animals to represent a full process, right? The dualities, male and female, light and dark. The raven and the dove are the two sides of the same process, so instead of one singular snake eating its own tail, the Ouroboros, you have a raven to represent the first part of you and your life up to your own search for your happiness. The dove will now be the second half of the same transformational process, which gets you back to the same place under new circumstances, with new abilities and a bigger picture on life, the universe, and our human condition. This is also the dual nature of the manufactured ego and the enlightened ego. One gives way to the other, feeds the other. However, it's only the answers we give and the commitment to those answers that make things stay that way. The Raven is used in all types of lore and mythology, from Aesop's fables in the West to being an unclean beast in the East. Scandinavian stories with Odin having a pair of ravens who were his messengers called Hugin, Thought, and Munin, Memory. Isn't that fun? (laughs) Odin was also known to shapeshift into a raven, meaning the raven could actually bring spiritual messages to the world. Raven was also known as a trickster and a wise being. In the Pacific Northwest folklore, raven was the one who stole sunlight from someone who would like to keep it and keep the world in total darkness. Sometimes, though, the raven was also seen as a <clears throat> bad omen. <clears throat> uh uh the Christian communities, uh, it was foretold that wicked priests would be turned into ravens when they died. However, ravens are very playful and are excellent tool users. They find interesting ways to open up nuts and get water, as Aesop told us. They're also very vocal about things and can be taught to speak. Ravens actually incorporate and mimic the calls of other species. The dove is just as saturated in lore and legend, but most of it tends to center around all of the traditional feminine and mother symbols. The song of this totem tells you to mourn what has passed and awaken to the promise of a new future. This is why when Noah sends out the dove, she is his prophecy of the new world and is the beginning of this new motherly womb of love. The earth is a female planet, and the morning dove helps remind us creation and new birth are available to all of us. Once she does not come back, it symbolizes the prophecy is complete. The dove is also symbolic for innocence and purity. It is also symbolic of the in-between times of the spiritual and physical realms, and a thinning of the veil, so to speak. This is symbolizing that you are moving closer to your destination of seeing this heaven for yourself. Dove also helps to relieve inner trauma and turmoil that might have come from that. Christians see the dove as a symbol of peace, Plus, it has the olive branch when it returns to the ark for the final time. And remember, Christians believe the raven is a bad omen, so the dove in the dualistic world is considered the good one or the clean one. So, their literal interpretation of this story would naturally influence their love of one over another, seeing the raven as something negative and the dove as something positive. However, they are who <clears throat> we used to be and who we want to become. They are both part of the process the raven and the dove we just tend to get caught up in the most the firsts or the best the Ouroboros the ox the raven and the dove all say the same thing but in a different language different culture which are also influenced by the natural world around them in America we don't have oxen but we do have ravens and doves depending on where you live maybe you've got snakes But I doubt they eat their tails. (laughs) They don't know what they're missing. After the Ark is built and everything is loaded up, the first half of the journey is done. Now, on to the second half. The first half of the journey has been a lot of work and attention to detail up to this point. First, you had to erase your manufactured ego. Then you had to find your enlightened one. Search for and find what you wanted, and now we start the new phase of holding boundaries and following through with our enlightened ego. You may have to change your name, change your career, or maybe even end the relationship so you can actually move forward with your enlightened ego. Getting over this hump is the hardest part. If you can keep holding your focus that this place is heaven and you are God and the point of your existence is to create a personal paradise on earth, Not after you die, to create a paradise on earth for your mind and body to exist for the rest of your life. It was supposed to be your whole life, but we just woke up late. Don't panic, you're not actually late, you're just disoriented. You're getting your bearings now, or you're getting your three points of reference for the location on your map. And once you get your compass and you find your route, you're golden. And once you get back home, everything will become better. You won't be so bitter or upset about life because you know what's going on. You will simply stop complaining about your life and you'll just start taking the initiative to do the things you want to do. In the sixth image, the man is now seen riding the ox while playing a flute, as the ox continues on homeward. The ox still has a smile on his face and the two of them act as if they've been best friends for their whole life. The poem reads, riding the ox, meandering homeward, seeing off the evening clouds, playing a flute, clapping and singing so happily, knowing well, why speak of it? When you know, you know. When you know you're happy, you don't have to tell anyone you're happy. They feel it. You say nothing and you are happy. You find yourself making music in accordance with nature and yourself. You've found these moments of alignment. Now you're beginning to have control over these parts of your life. This is around the same time Noah is seeing the tops of the mountains. Ten months and one day into a fourteen-month journey. 8-2 The fountains, also of the deep, and the windows of the heaven were stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually, and after the end of a hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated. And the ark rested in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, upon the mountains of Ararat. Ararat means the curse of trembling, the curse reversed, or precipitation of the curse. I've also found it to mean high ground, or sacred ground because the mountains of Ararat were considered sacred to the Armenians. Mount Ararat was a volcano, but is now dormant. The natural energy that a volcano gives off is felt by your body, but not necessarily picked up with your eyes. Next to the flat lands leading up to the mountains, Mount Ararat seems to dwarf the mountains behind it. Plus, at over 5,000 feet, it seems to extend into the heavens. So if you don't believe... All this is heaven, and only the sky is heaven. You will think super tall things are more heavenly. This mountain, that person, Tower of Babel, all stems from mortal man's belief he is not God, and he is not in heaven. You've done a ton of work, and now you're starting to see the new world emerge from all this emotional energy that was overwhelming you. And where do you come to rest? Mount Ararat the sacred high land that reverses curses. After seven months of following through with a new you, you can't undo what you've done. Even if you want to go back the other way, you know too much now to let yourself, because you realize that it's you that's hurting you. So if you go back the other way, you are now consciously and knowingly running into walls that you know will hurt you. You might go back for like six seconds, and then you'll be like, this is so stupid. I can't live like this. Of course, you could do it a little bit here and there, but you'll never commit to that lifestyle of ignorance and oblivion again. You are now in a sacred space between the two worlds. It will take massive commitment to go either way now whether back the way you came from, or moving forward. Well, I suggest we just keep moving forward. eight five. And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. Can you imagine the laughter and joy and hope Noah must have felt when he saw the tops of the mountains? Yes, I was right we will live and thrive and be well for the rest of our days. Very, very soon now we will have the whole world to call heaven. 8-6 And it came to pass at the end of forty days, after Mount Ararat, that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. And he also sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her feet. And she returned unto him unto the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her into him, into the ark. You too will take some time to be strong enough to stay out of the ark your womb, your cocoon, all on your own in a new form. So you'll have to take your new enlightened ego out into the world. And you may find your new ego is a bit squishy and not nearly as sturdy as you would have hoped. You'll find yourself slipping back into old patterns periodically. It's okay. Just bring your focus back to your happiness and remind yourself of who you are trying to be. Allow yourself to mess up and keep moving along. Sometimes aiming for your enlightened ego, you'll do something new that you've never even done before. And you can either incorporate that new element that you found to your new enlightened ego, or discard it and bring your focus back to your enlightened ego again. Riding the ox, meandering homeward, seeing off the evening clouds, playing a flute, clapping and singing so happily, knowing well. Why speak of it? Plate number seven. Ox forgotten. The man remains. Having ridden home on the ox, both man and ox are free. Though the sun is high, still the man seems to dream. Whip and tether lie unused in his thatched hut. In the seventh picture, the man is seen sitting on the porch of his hut with his hat, lead rope, nose ring, and his whip are strewn across the ground. These things are no longer needed. The man and the ox have now merged together. This is what happens when you find your happiness. Train your happiness lead your happiness, align with your happiness, and now merge with your happiness. All the tools you use to get here are no longer needed to maintain this new world. This new world is now just the world you live in, just like it used to be, just the world you lived in. What happens when you become enlightened? Will oceans spill out into space? Will volcanoes erupt floating islands? Will all the people of the world stop being mean? No. No. And no. What happens when you become enlightened? You align yourself with your happiness. Now what does that have to do with the world? You now consciously know how you are responding to the world. You know it is you who either helps you win or keeps you from winning. Whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. Having ridden home on the ox, both man and ox are free. So the sun is high. Still the man seems to dream, Whip tether, lie unused in his thatched hut. Okay, so I have seen that images eight and nine have been switched and flipped around sometimes, depending on the artist and the temple. Sometimes the eighth image is a single white circle or blank canvas, and the other times it is a cherry blossom. The first time I saw these images, the eighth image was the cherry blossom tree, and not the blank canvas. Now, we've talked a lot about animal symbolism, but not too much about plant and tree symbolism. Remember I said there's a lot I could teach you about a single cubit? Imagine all the living things you see as a symbolic representation of something. Which means the mountains have symbolism. The trees... The rivers, the plants, the animals, the insects, and even the other human beings that are showing up in your world all have certain symbolism, giving you hidden observations about your world that most people take for granted or believe is just the way things are. The average person doesn't realize their life is a reflection of themselves and that they are actually creating all these animals and plants and people that show up in their world every day This happens the same way, only certain plants and animals can live in specific regions of the world. You know this because the container is different for each of these regions, thereby altering the possibilities that could arise from these environments. Deserts can only create desert life. Pine forests can only create pine forest life. Deciduous forests create deciduous life. The terrain is different, so the animals and insects will need different abilities and camouflages to navigate their world. The weather is different in each of these areas, so they'll need a different type of fur or skin to thrive in the elements. Plus, the food is different, because only certain plants can grow in the acidic soil of pines or other areas in dense jungles of South America or India. Now, the symbolism of cherry blossoms... There are flowers of the cherry blossom tree, known in Japan as the sakura. Although not entirely indigenous to Japan, it is the country where cherry blossoms are revered with ceremonial receptions called hanime, excuse me, hanime and symbolized as an omen of good fortune, an emblem of love and affection, as well as an enduring metaphor for the fleeting nature of mortality. The overall symbolism of the cherry blossom has interestingly transcended into other deeply rooted meanings as well. Now, the symbolic references of the cherry blossom in China, as opposed to Japan, hold a quite different meaning than that of Japan. In China, the flower is associated with female beauty and dominance, as well as feminine sexuality. It symbolizes um, power and strength, However, within the Chinese herbal traditions, the cherry blossom is often a symbol of love and passion. The blooming season of cherry blossoms are brief, resulting in an instant beauty and an immediate death of the flower. They therefore serve with the Japanese culture as reminders of humanity and mortality, since, like cherry blossoms, a human being's life can end at any given moment. The human condition is epitomized through the cherry blossom, alerting people that life is too short to waste away and that people should live life to the fullest. The cherry blossom season overlaps with the fiscal and calendar years in Japan, marking the arrival of new beginnings, like a child's first day of school or a new employee's first day at his new job. This exuberance and intensity of the cherry blossom, therefore, bestows the license to hope and dream of greater things to come, and to look ahead with enthusiasm and optimism. Plate number eight. Returning to the source and origin. The poem reads, It is a struggle to return to the source and origin. Nothing surpasses this. Without sight or sound, unable to see the tree from the woods, the water vast, the flowers red, because it is so. The image on the plate is a simple cherry blossom. All the years that I've been doing research and looking at the human condition from all sorts of different angles and perspectives, one of the most common elements that people seem to totally disregard Is time. Even though the cherry blossom does represent a short life or short blooming, this has more to do with the time needed to achieve the results in your life. The whole process has taken time. From the first moment you noticed you weren't happy, to finding the ox, taming the ox, playing your flute and returning home to the place where you were and when you first arrived on this planet, You have stripped off all the layers and aligned your inner self with your outer self and now you are happy. But we still have to keep up momentum. So even though you know how to make a basket in basketball, the idea is to become perfect at it. Swishes every time where the net snaps as the ball passes through it. And it's even more impressive to be the one who shot the ball rather than a spectator in the bleachers who witnessed it. How did you get so good at basketball, man? practice, repetition, and a focus on absolute form over and 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 over again. You have to practice like six days a week and even before you have a game, you're playing more, shooting more, when the game is over and you shower, the gymnasium is empty and you come back out and you shoot some more. It's a lifestyle. But how do we make this lifestyle happen? How do we keep it where we want it? How do we get to where we're at before we start this journey? Time devoted towards the manufactured ego. Time towards revenge. Time towards lack. Time towards sickness, separation, and sin. Time spent planting stupid daffodils. Time cutting the ends off the ham. Time to look down on who you are and you want to stand for. The tree represents time past and all the work you've done up to this point. It is a struggle to return to the source and origin. Nothing surpasses this. Without sight or sound, unable to see the tree from the woods, the water vast, the flowers red, because it is so. 8.13 And it came to pass in the 600th and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, the earth was dried. In this moment, Noah no longer hides from the world. He has finally come into his own, and the world that awaits him will be of his own creation and design. At this point, you have physically made a change and a noticeable one to all the people around you. Now you're seeing glimpses of your new world. Miracles are happening all the time now. You're meeting up with people who you feel are a better match to your unique self. You're finding your new tribe, so to speak. This new world becomes more giving and loving and understanding towards you and your desires. You rendezvous with people that want to see you succeed and encourage you to follow your dreams. 815. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth off the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee, of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle, and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. They may breed and abundantly in the earth, and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. If you're able to endure this length of time and hold true to your vision and stay committed in yourself, you will be able to see a new world and you will have created your heaven on earth. You will be filled with the spirit of life. Your old habits and your old ways of thinking that caused you such grief will now be gone. Never again will you have to endure such heavy things because the flood has washed away your separation and misalignment of your soul, mind, body, and reality. 8.19 Every beast, every creeping thing, and every fowl, and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. I really want to stress the reflection qualities here because everything after their kind went out forth from the ark. Just like you and your creations. They cannot abdicate their experience now because it's all them. It's all theirs. This was all they're doing, Noah and his family, and a direct outcome of the things that they did and whatever they do from now on will either maintain this new world or destroy it. But either way, it will be all their fault, and whatever they do now will be manifested in their future experiences. The Ninth Plate, man and ox, both forgotten. The poem reads, whip and tether, man and ox all empty the vast blue sky difficult to fathom how can a snowflake survive inside a fiery stove now i join the enlightened ones of the past the ninth image is a completely blank image there is nothing to be seen because there is no separation because everything has become one, singular, and whole again. An infant is completely empty-minded. It is said, unless you become like children, you cannot enter into heaven. It's said that at the age of 16 months, a child understands the concept of one. At the age of 32 months, a child understands two. When a child understands two, then the ego comes forth. We then live and see everything around us from this world of two, just like the tree of good and evil. The original mind is not the mind of one, but what exists prior to the mind. It's what exists prior even to people or to planets. It is that world of zero. When we see dualistically, We are insecure and unbalanced. The hills of home recede farther and farther away, becoming the manufactured ego, which is nothing more than a lackluster version of your enlightened ego. The ninth image is that union back into wholeness and back to zero. In the beginning, we were separated into our manufactured ego, and we lived in time past. We then realized that we weren't happy, and our happiness was now separate from us. We then went searching for that happiness, the ox, to realign ourselves once again with who we were originally. We found our happiness, wrestled with it, and finally got into alignment with ourselves again. And then after we were able to align ourselves for long enough, we were able to merge with the ox by riding it. Then we merged so well with it that the ox became us, and we became the ox, and the ox was no longer there. Now we've become more, and the man who has his happiness with him now merges with the world at large, and both the man and the world become aligned the same way the man walked beside the ox in the fifth image with the slack and the rope. This alignment has no separation because everything has become one, singular, whole. This is that slight gap between the hand of God and the hand of man in the Sistine Chapel. This place in time is where the snake's head and the tail meet, but are still slightly separated, but connected by energy. This place is the place prior to one, It is the place that is after the Omega but before the Alpha. Where is this place of ultimate union? This is represented by the Zen saying, Who were you before your father had eyes? Who were you before you were even thought about? Who were you before your father was born. Who were you before your father had eyes? This is the space of the ninth image in the achievement of enlightenment. Whip and tether, man and ox, all empty. The vast blue sky difficult to fathom. How can a snowflake survive inside a fiery stove? Now, I join the enlightened ones of the past. After all things have aligned and you are in your perfect place, you will inevitably look back on your life to see how all these things seem to become or manifest in your life. Jumping back to the end of Noah and the Flood, and the end of chapter 8. 821. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither again will I smite any more every thing living as I have done. Did you hear what he said? For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Remember this word evil and the tree of knowledge of good and evil? The imagination, the mind's envisioning of man's heart is caused by or comes from his youth or childhood. This is why Adam and Eve Representations of the universal male and female are like 30 years old when the story starts. Because this is the time of midlife crisis when we're trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And then after we've completed the process, we look back and see, oh, it was because mom and dad and my society I grew up in taught me that this world was evil, but it was only my imagination. Just your imagination. Mm-mm-mm. Sorry. However, my imagination affected my heart and how I saw the world making other things evil in my mind, even though nothing was really evil. It was all in our heads. Because once again, when you become enlightened, what changes? Nothing. Just you. Just your head. That's it. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> And when you see, you live. And when you live, you love. And then it's great. When I I read this verse, I had to read it like 10 times over again just to see what I thought I was seeing. I don't know how many times I went by this verse just blazing on through. It didn't even make a connection. However, you can't make this connection until you've realized the mind, Eve, is the mother of all living. Then suddenly the word imagination makes sense here because the mind and its belief is the creator of all living and now Noah finally sees the source of all disease in the world. And when you can see it and understand it, life becomes easy it becomes heaven again and you realize it's only people's minds that keep them focused on whatever it is they believe. If they change their outlook, they could literally change their life. And there's a certain way the world works that will never stop. Knowing the cycle and the path and the outcome, you learn to work with it instead of being upset because it's like, oh, it's daytime again. Oh, it's nighttime again. 822, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, and cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Time will continue. Before the monk is enlightened, he must chop wood and carry water. After the monk is enlightened, he must chop wood and carry water. The difference is, it's under your terms after you can see the fullness of you. Plate number 10, the final image, entering the world hands-free. The poem reads, bare-chested and barefoot Entering the world, covered with dust and ashes, smiling broadly, there's no need for magic spells to make the barren branch bloom. The final image is of a man who has a large belly, balding head, and loose-fitting clothes, standing, looking back from where he came, holding a bottle of wine. He's no longer the same man we saw in the beginning who had lost his happiness. This man is sure of himself, strong and content. Some people believe enlightenment and the end to be the ninth plate, the complete blank canvas where everything disappears into nothing. This is incomplete. The tenth, and the final image, is the highest achievement. And that is to come back to the ordinary world. To become part of the greater humanity. Only when he comes back down from the mountain is he able to actually help anyone. And when one comes from such heights, you are absolutely drunk with ecstasy. All you want to do is share and laugh with the world. But you will see and have a new challenge now. Because you will see the potential of men and the whole world. But few will answer the call of the Spirit. The same thing happened to Noah. 820. And Noah began to be a husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine, and was drunken. And he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, and laid it up upon their shoulders, and went backward, and covered their nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. This drunkenness Noah was experiencing was the result of all his hard work and attention to detail. He had finally reached a place where he was happy all the time, and he loves where he's at right now in this time and space, and he knows that if he wants more, he knows exactly how to bring it to him. And the same thing is going to happen to you. You'll be all drunk on life, naked and open and vulnerable, and someone's going to come up to you and say, you know, you really shouldn't be this happy. There are a lot of things going on in the world that are not good and, and that are actually bad. You should really put some clothes on. And if you don't, I'll do it for you. The type of people who believe life is misery, suffering, and hell will give you the most challenge. They don't like people believing people are naturally good. They don't like that you are being honest and open. It really bothers these people. And they will literally come over and try to make you change something about yourself. They think free will means we have the free will to conform to our authority's demands. Or we get in trouble. Essentially, free will becomes this opportunity to do something for someone else, or I get to control you, instead of it meaning that each of us have the opportunity to pursue our happiness. And if we don't like what we're doing, what you're doing, or somebody else is doing, or those around us, you have the free will to leave. These haters of life preach free will, but they don't really know what it means. Unfortunately, it could very well be your own family that tries to convince you of this. Okay, I know I've been a bit dark this episode. I don't know. (laughs) But it fits with the realness of things that are happening around us. However, when Noah flips out on Ham, Canaan's father... He basically tells Ham he's a crap father and his son's going to turn out to be a nothing because Ham is an idiot. 8.25 And he said, Noah, to Ham, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth even more so, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Noah gives a repetitive element in the story again, where he prophesies that Canaan will be a servant to Japheth, and he will dwell in the tents of Shem. They're repeating the lemmich in his two wives' story, seeing that the same thing is going to happen over again, like in chapter 5. All the work Noah did to change this world to then have his posterity have it slip through their fingers. He's not really cursing Ham. He's foretelling him his personal future because this is what his child believes, which means that this is also what his father believes too. It's not a curse. It's an obvious obvious path that Ham and Canaan are walking. And if you catch it, Noah makes a different god or a step down from God each time he talks to Ham about Canaan, telling him how he's going to jack his kid up. Because remember it was Ham who saw his father's nakedness and then he went and tattled to his brothers that he was naked and then they went in and covered him. But he's also the guy who named his son's lineage the same negativity from both Cain and Seth, calling them Canaan a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren he's explaining to ham he's gonna look at the other men as better than himself because he's already seeing evil or negativity and they just got off the ark and literally stepped onto the ground and then he becomes all sarcastic saying blessed be the god of shem and canaan shall be his servant no 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 no. i got it i got it i got it god shall enlarge japheth and then the Lord God shall dwell in the tents of Japheth, and then Canaan will be his servant. Did you not just pay attention to the last five years of our life? Did you not remember Grandpa Limitch? Do you not remember the city of tragedy that great-great-grandpa Cain built? Do you not remember the outcomes of their stupidity? And did you not just step into heaven like three or four years ago? You know, hopefully you two figured it out. I don't know what else to do with this one. 928, and Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. (laughs) But this is exactly what Noah realized. He can't save his children because we each have to walk the path and build an ark ourselves. No one else can or will build it for you. Noah can't save his kids any more than Jesus could save anyone's soul. He was always asking, do you believe it? If you believe I can heal you, I will help you. But it is the individual who must carry their own cross. It is the individual who must learn to fish for themselves. And it is the individual who must journey through the wilderness of their past and their entire existence to find and tame their own ox in order to bring it back home and for them to be enlightened. But when you do all this, you come back bare-chested, barefoot. Entering the world, covered with dust and ashes, smiling broadly, there's no need for magic spells to make the barren branch bloom. What happens when you become enlightened? You align yourself with your happiness. You now consciously know how you're responding to the world you know it is you who either helps you win, or keeps you from winning. Life is the same as it has ever been, which means you can have the perfect world again. It still exists, it's still here. It only requires you to become selfish. I like to use the term empowered selfishness because you are a living God and there's nothing you need from anyone except maybe a class in the basics of life. You have the power to create your world because you're doing it right now. You were just never made aware of it and that it was you who was doing it. So we learn to look outside ourselves, separate ourselves from ourselves, looking to others for approval through smiles that determine who we are and who we can't be. You have the same power as God, except you are standing in the perfect position to determine your next step because you've been living your life. You know what you've enjoyed, what you didn't, You know what you'd like to see more of, feel more of, and hear more of in your life. And you're the only one who can really know. Trust your feelings. Trust the tree of life. And you will never be unhappy. Allow every fiber of your being to find happy. Be happy. And maintain happy. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks for letting me share the tending of the ox with you this week. I hope that it gives you real hope and encouragement that you too can achieve this enlightened perspective. Keep referring back to the elements of your soul's compass. This will help rein everything in to keep you focused as you're searching through the wilderness for your happiness. Your soul's compass is simply a personal identity, mission, and vision statement all rolled into one. It makes what you do and where you go and why you do it known to you and others so that you can bring to you only that which you want. The six elements of the soul's compass are your name, energy, love, tribe, outcome, and occupation. My soul's compass once again, my name is Zen Katori. I'm an expressive, philosophical visionary whose love is to teach, inspire, and encourage seekers and indigos to be spiritually liberated and personally free through books, speeches, and workshops. This statement helps guide me towards me and helps keep me centered within myself. (laughs) And if I'm asked a question about the direction of my life and I'm uncertain about how I feel about it, I check in with my soul's compass, and if, it, if my compass aligns with it, or parallels with it somehow, like when I'm doing a partnership or team ventures, I go ahead and do it. The enlightened ego is who we want to become in our future, hopefully very near future. How is it that we get there? By redefining our soul's compass with answers that bring us the utmost joy, excitement, and well-being, and then holding on to that ox. In order to clarify our soul's compass, we need to observe our worlds very closely and meticulously. So, once again, for this week's homework, keep finding and sorting through those cubits until you start to see patterns emerge. Then start taking those awesome patterns you found out about yourself and put them in your soul's compass verbiage. Find the best, most amazing way to talk about yourself and just don't stop. Those people who typically give you resistance will fall away and they'll make space for you to bring other people who want to help you become you. And keep up your mantras. Everything works out for me and under the radar, under the radar. (laughs) Thanks again for tuning into Waking Up With Zen. I'm Zen Katori. See you next Sunday.